Welcome to 751, everyone. I'm your host, Carter Laren. I'm here today to talk to you about the confidential Google video that was released a few days ago. It was a video from a TGIF, I think is the, the, the a Friday meeting uh, of looked like several hundred Googlers that was held on the Friday after the November election in 2016. So this was right after Trump was elected. And I'm not going to go through the entire video. There's a great description, including annotations of key moments in the video uh, up on Breitbart. I'll put the link to that below. But I do recommend if you, especially if you're not from Silicon Valley, go ahead and, and watch that video. It does take about an hour, but it's worth it if, you, if you're not part of Silicon Valley, just to get some context of what it's like here. Now, I've been here for uh, 18 years. I've been a uh, startup founder and worked for startups and, and been in the, the tech startup world uh, that entire time, first, first obviously as an employee and then founder and then angel investor and venture capitalist. My wife is also a venture capitalist in the tech startup world, so there is uh, a lot of context here that I just have because I'm I've, I'm in and around this stuff, and I sometimes forget what it's like to not be in Silicon Valley, as clearly many people at Google forget as well. And you know, I watched this video, and at first I thought, you know, before I watched it, I thought there's going to be, you know, people are making a big deal about this video. They're, they're calling it you know, this revelation to what's going on at Google. There's going to be some smoking gun. You know, Sergey is going to stand up and say, damn it, that algorithm that I had to make sure Hillary Wynn didn't, one, didn't work or something, right? Or we're going to, let's ban all conservative news sites. But there wasn't a smoking gun like that. And frankly, when I watched the video, I kind of said, meh. It's just like that's just like a meeting at a company in Silicon Valley. That's not a big deal. But you know, I realized, you know, if I had been given this video, I probably wouldn't have thought it was news. But I realized that it is news, and that not everyone lives in Silicon Valley and works in Silicon Valley, and most of you are appalled by this, or at least many of you are. And the reason that I kind of just shrugged, and probably many other people in Silicon Valley just shrugged at this video, is that this is just how it is. It's not. This is not a video about Google's culture. This is a video about Silicon Valley's culture. It is taken for granted here that you are at least on the left, if not radical left. That is just taken for granted. It, Silicon Valley is not anti-conservative. It's anti-non-leftist, right? I'm not conservative. I came to Silicon Valley 18 years ago, and at the time, I was a libertarian. And libertarian, was, you know, being a libertarian in, in Silicon Valley was okay. You know, I, I wasn't a leftist, but people kind of, they were okay with it. It was fine. Can't really do that now. If you're not if you're not a social justice warrior, radical leftist, you you are an outcast here. And this predates the 2016 election. This is not Trump. This is the way it's been for quite some time. Now, of course, 
Trump's election did exacerbate this. But it's been like this for a while here. And so I do encourage you, if you're not in Silicon Valley, please watch the video, but understand that this isn't about Google. This is what it's like in Silicon Valley. And I'm not saying that's good. In fact, I'm saying it's horrible, but it's the way it is. So I, again, I'm not going to go through the whole meeting. I am going to you know, briefly give you my takeaways from the meeting and talk a little bit about the culture here in Silicon Valley and what you can do about it and what I think you shouldn't do. So as I said, this meeting uh, was on, on the Friday after the election. It was in, some, in an auditorium, presumably, at Google's campus. The meeting was kicked off by Sergey Brin, who's the co-founder, along with Larry Page. Sergey kicked off the meeting, and Larry, Larry came in later to help with some Q&A. Um, you know, Sergey, Sergey started by kind of saying how offended he was that Trump was elected and he was sad, right? So Sergey started. And, and then, you know, we had various speakers. We had the, the CEO, uh, Sundar Pichai. Uh, we had uh, Kent Walker, who's a VP. Uh, we had the CFO. We had another VP. And the CFO, uh, Ruth, uh, Ruth Porat, I'm not sure exactly if that's how you pronounce her name, but she, she actually appeared to tear up on stage talking about these things. She also called for everyone to hug each other, right? Now, in fairness, I think Eileen Naughton's voice also seemed to waver. I, I couldn't tell if she was tearing up or not. Now, she's the only one in the entire hour that they that that at least mentioned diversity of political opinion, and and kind of said, "Hey, you know, I've talked to some conservatives here, and and they don't feel entirely comfortable revealing who they are." And she urged tolerance. Now, of course, that's clearly just lip service because, you know, this was November 2016. By August of 2017, less than a year later, James Damore was fired, um, not really for voicing a political opinion, but just writing some facts that were inconvenient that uh, ran contrary to some progressive narratives. So, you know, the meeting basically went like this. Larry Page stood up, said, or not Larry Page, uh, Sergey Brin stood up and said, hey, we're all saddened, uh, offended by the Trump election. Uh, they, they generally made their, they all generally made their anti-Trump views obvious to the point of taking it for granted that everyone in the room or just about everyone in the room was in the same mental state of dismay that they were. And in fairness, they're probably right. Probably almost everyone in the room was in the same mental state of dismay. So I don't think this was the upper management of Google foisting their opinions on people. I think that they are reflective of the the Google employee base, largely. Uh, they this meeting also lasted more than an hour, and now presumably they don't have you know these meetings every Friday so that they can talk about politics. But they spent this entire hour focused on the Trump election and lamenting about it. And as I said, they, they, they treated it kind of like after trauma care, right? It was almost as if there had been a massive attack and uh, thousands of people were killed and they were giving hugs to each other. And, and, uh, and I don't know if they set up cry rooms or not, but they, they certainly... It was it was it was aftercare for trauma. I mean that's that was the that was the tone, and they did some Q and A. 
from Google employees that were afraid or concerned about stuff uh, post-Trump election. And some of them were the kind of normal talking points you would expect. Some of them were just patently stupid, like, you know, will I lose my health care for my same-sex partner, right? That's just a an obvious misunderstanding of who's responsible for your health care. That's up to Google. They can provide health care to your same-sex partner as much as they would like. So uh, some weirdness there. But, you know, generally just a Q&A in this kind of shared lamentations. Now, you know, my three takeaways here, the, the things that I, I want to underscore, because I think that they represent Silicon Valley generally, and I want to make sure people understand this, uh, the first takeaway here is that it is an echo chamber, right? Certainly Google Google was an echo chamber. They were all shocked. No one had suspected. And this is funny, right? Google is the, the data company. They've got just astronomical amounts of data at their fingertips. They are the data gurus. If anyone are data gods on the planet, it's Google, right? And yet, Sergey and Larry didn't predict this. They were shocked. Oddly enough, other people actually did use some Google search data to predict Trump's victory, but Google didn't know. Um, so it just gives goes to show you that the conversations that are had in the office and at Starbucks and at uh, the Rosewood and everywhere else people are in Silicon Valley, they're all talking about the same thing with the same, you know, they're all, we're all voting for Hillary or, you know, prior to that, probably half of them were voting for Bernie, but they were all voting for Hillary. And so they didn't know anyone who was voting for Trump or very few people. I think, uh, I think Sergey mentioned he, he talked to a few people who voted for Trump, but it's, it's, it is an echo chamber and it's, it's all Silicon Valley. It's not Google. The other thing that I, I think is important to note, and this isn't, uh, this isn't particularly politically important, but it's important to understand just how Silicon Valley kind of is. Uh, it's it's they're, They were all melodramatic and hyperbolic about everything. And I don't actually think that's political. I, I know there is a lot of melodrama around Trump's victory, but there's melodrama around your pitch deck. There's melodrama around, you know, stupid new algorithms. There's just melodrama about everything, or I'll say hyperbole, maybe not melodrama around your pitch deck. There's hyperbole around everything. So uh, that's just the way Silicon Valley is. It's, it's a lot more about sales pitches and less about engineering than people outside Silicon Valley imagine it to be. So, uh, you know, and so naturally this kind of emotional hyperbole results in a very somber tone after the election. And it again, they viewed it almost like this this tragedy, this terrorist attack had happened, and it was, it was very, very somber. It was a funeral. Now, the third takeaway, and again, like like the other two, this is not this is not specific to Google. They they view themselves as intellectually superior to most of the rest of the country and, and possibly the rest of the world. They, you know, it's odd, right? So they're mostly leftists who, you know, complain about capitalism. Now, of course, uh, they're, they're, you know, many of them are worth millions and millions of dollars. And I'm not just talking about the founders, even just employees, right? So, you know, 
they're very anti-capitalism, but they're very sure of their own importance uh, because they measure it in terms of how much money they've made. So there's this weird kind of... I, I find that people who are kind of anti-money philosophically have this weird personal obsession with money and, and uh, either a... Uh, either they've just struggled with it so much and can never seem to get ahead or they've made it very easily. There's there's never like this healthy, there never seems to be this healthy relationship with what money is and what it's not. So, you know, these are people who've made all this money. Um, and so, and, and they, I think they kind of view that as a measure of their self-worth. They view themselves as intellectually superior to everyone else. And so, so as a result of that, their interpretation of this election is not that there's other people in the world who legitimately disagree with them and have all the information they do, but legitimately disagree. Instead, the only explanation they can come up with here is, well, other people must be misinformed or uninformed, right? And because we're Google and we're smart, it's our job to enlighten them because, gee, if we had just enlightened people, then then they would have voted for Hillary, obviously. It, they just, it's all this fake news, right? It's all this misinformation. That's the reason that they don't agree with us. So that, that tone, that vibe was repeated quite often during the meeting. This idea that people must just have the wrong information. And some of it was just a little bit weird and autistic even. Like, Sergey talked about studying data and, and, had this theory about, well, when, when people are bored, that's when they turn to fascism, which I, I just, <laughs> at best, it's one of the most inadequate explanations for the rise of Hitler I've ever heard. It's kind of embarrassing, but I guess Sergei can get away with saying whatever he wants. Uh, but wow, it, it, was, it was weird. So, so that's kind of how the meeting went. As I said, you know, this isn't, really surprising if you live here in Silicon Valley. But I want to talk to you about what you can do if you live here and you don't like this. Because I think secretly there are quite a lot of us who don't like this, right? So let's talk about what you can do. First, you can speak up, right? Now, I recognize... Speaking up is not always an option. Look what happened to James Damore. He didn't even really speak up very much. I've certainly spoken up as a venture capitalist, not even uh, not even strongly supporting one thing or another, but I think I retweeted the wrong person and got called a Nazi for it. So, I mean, there there is, you know, there's a lot. There are consequences, right? And and that didn't affect me as much because I couldn't get fired because it was my own firm, right? And it was a it was a founder who we didn't fund calling me a Nazi, so uh, I guess there was motive there. But, you know, that's the kind of retribution you can, you can, you can get fired, right? So I recognize that everyone, not everyone can speak up, but you should, you should if you can, right? Speak up as much as you can. And I also recommend finding like-minded individuals for support. There are, there's probably meetup groups out there. I know there's, there's meetup groups out there. There are, are some some other people who are not radical leftists. You know, I've befriended people that are, you know, traditionally leftists who were were social justice warriors, but
but who just kind of woke up one day and realized this is ridiculous. Look at look at look what's happening. This is absolutely ridiculous. I'm more of a classical liberal, right? And and we don't agree on everything, but we agree in with uh, the concept of free speech and that people shouldn't be uh, uh, beaten and, and called slurs and 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 bad names just because people disagree with them. So, you know, there are people out there that you can team up with and get and get to to be friends with. And I would say purge that the people who are toxic in your life who are gonna give you a hard time just just don't hang out with them. Purge them, purge them from your life. You got better time, better things to do with your time. The other thing I'll say about teaming up with other people or having a support group is uh, groups are harder to bully than individuals, right? So this is the entire strategy here, and I'm not even sure it's conscious, although it may be. The the strategy here in in companies like Google is you isolate people, and then you're then you're free to bully them. So if you make the people feel isolated and alone, you're the only person who doesn't agree with our radical left agenda, right? It's very easy then to push them around. Now I'm not I'm not a supporter of government uh, enforced or regulated unions, but this is the idea behind a union. The free market unions are fine, and the idea behind a union is that uh, union workers, you know, a worker by themselves doesn't have a lot of negotiating power with with a company, but all the workers together do, right? And in a free market, you would have unions, and you would have the unions would 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 push on on management and management would push on unions and there'd be negotiations and you know sometimes it would work out for one side and sometimes the other but there's nothing wrong with unions in a free market and you know the reason that they are useful is because they can help fight some bullying so if you imagine you know take James Demore at Google for an example if you imagine that instead of firing James Demore he had 300 other Googlers there who were, you know, key positions in software engineers who said, well, if you fire James over this, we're leaving. Yeah, might have changed things. Maybe not. I don't know. But certainly that would have been enough people for them to go start their own company if they all, if they all left. Uh, but instead, James was isolated, right? Uh, and partly that culture of isolation is, is, uh, is intentional, I think. So, so you can find some like-minded people, and I suggest you do that if you're here. You know, the other thing, you're, if you're in Silicon Valley and you're at one of these companies like Google or Twitter, just leave. If you can leave, leave. I know it's easy to say leave your job, and I know the cost of living here is really high, but there are plenty of jobs. There's plenty of other companies. You can found another company. Now, I will say uh, founding a company doesn't isolate you from this. It doesn't, sorry, doesn't protect you from this. Uh, a lot of VCs are, are very left-leaning you you part part of founding a company is trying to get press and being in the news and you know if people hear that you're not a social justice warrior you'll start to get a lot of bad press and you'll get vilified certainly the you know some of the main publications that that write about startups TechCrunch for example they're all it's all they're all leftists right so they're not gonna they're not gonna have anything nice to say about you if if they find out that you're not on their side the real the the real option you know if you're in Silicon Valley and, and I know this is trite to say and it's it's easy for me to say it, it, leave uh, first of all the quality of life will be better I've had a lot of friends who've left Silicon Valley in the last two years they're all happy about it no one's regretting leaving Silicon Valley and I know a lot of people 
whether whether you're here now or whether you're thinking about coming to Silicon Valley because you have a dream of starting a company or or um, doing something in the tech space, you know, Silicon Valley is not the center of the startup activity in the world anymore. I mean, it is it is a center. I mean, I'm not saying it's not, but it's not it's not the only place in the world anymore. I think, you know, Silicon Valley, you know, in the in the almost two decades that I've been here, there's been a shift in focus in in Silicon Valley. And you can tell how how founders talk and how venture capitalists talk and how angels talk to each other. The focus has shifted from building really interesting things. I mean, they're still doing that. I'm not saying they're doing but there's been this added added focus of of being progressive. And it almost trumps building things. Right, it's it's focused on this progressivism, virtue signaling, uh, and frankly, this kind of sophomoric, drug-induced self-exploration. So, I know this may shock some people outside of Silicon Valley, but it's not uncommon for uh, people to microdose LSD at work all all day, all week. Uh, I was actually had a meeting with someone. Uh, it was probably a year ago by now, maybe not quite a year ago. She just kind of casually mentioned in the meeting, oh, yeah, I'm microdosing on LSD right now. And no one batted an eye. This wasn't like, oh, my God, how are you? You're crazy. I mean, I I said to, <laughs> I said to my colleague later, that's just kind of crazy. But no one else thought it was crazy. Right? It's normal. You microdose LSD. Why? Because it's cool or whatever. Right? There's uh, ayahuasca is popular. Right, which is if you don't know what it is, it's it's DMT. Go go look it up. It's it's a horrible drug that's uh, probably does permanent brain damage. I'm, I'm not a I'm not totally sure, but you know it's you know I've VCs have encouraged founders to go on ayahuasca retreats so that they can I don't I don't know what they do. They find their spirit animal or whatever, but it's it's that kind of mentality that's become popular. Right, so when when people make money in Silicon Valley. Yeah, they angel invest it and they do other stuff. But a lot of people who've made money, they just spend a lot of money on drugs and retreats and building Burning Man art carts and finding themselves or whatever. It's uh, it's kind of weird. It's a, it's a weird culture if you're not used to it. And everyone thinks it's normal and everyone thinks it's fine. Right? And of course, look, I, I appreciate creativity. I appreciate art. I mean, there is some aspect of normal and fine to, to this, but the 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 level of uh, the level of this kind of uh, hippy dippy craziness is is more than you would expect if you're not in Silicon Valley. So, you know, and it's leaked into the startup world. It's not just it's not just oh, these are the old hippies from the '60s who are still living in in rent control departments on Hate Street. This is these are, these are the startup people. These are the tech people. Now, why this is, I don't, I don't really know. The only, I mean, there's some philosophic reasons. I, I think, I think one, one explanation that I think kind of might resonate with people out there. If, if you were a nerd in, in junior high school or, or high school, and I certainly was, and I don't mean that derogatorily. I was just a nerd. I wasn't popular. Uh, I was, I was smart. I wasn't popular. I was good at math and science. Was a computer programmer. Uh, that was that was nerdy. That didn't get you uh, prom dates, right? So, 
if you were kind of a nerd in junior high school and high school and you've come to Silicon Valley and you start a company or you're you're one of the on the founding team or early employee and you do well and you make a bunch of money a lot of these people have never really gotten over any sort of trauma from from being nerdy or unpopular in junior high school or high school and so what they do with their money is they immediately try to revert back to junior high school mode and join the cool kids gang right and you know they want to go you know hang out with musicians and try and be cool because they weren't cool in junior high school i'm not sure but it it seems like this lack of getting over issues right instead of just saying hey you know what that cool culture in junior high school was actually destructive and horrible uh it turns out that being a nerd is a good idea and i'm just going to have my own nerdy culture and that's what i'm going to propagate they they kind of they self-abandon right they 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 decide oh well now is my chance now maybe i can buy my way into that crowd and so that's why i really think that's why there's a lot of this uh progressivism and drug use and everything else in Silicon Valley. So, again, I'll just get back to this. I know I'm, I'm kind of rambling here, but you know, Silicon Valley, not the only place to do startups anymore. Frankly, if you're going to do hardware, uh, there's not hardware in Silicon Valley anymore, anymore really. Uh, there used to be, obviously, that's where the name came from. But you're better off in Shenzhen if you're going to do hardware. Now, if you're going to do software... There's really no reason to be here either, because if you're going to do software, you can do it anywhere, right? You can have uh, remote teams, and and you can build software. Now, I'm not a big fan of remote offices generally. I usually advise against them. I think there's something good about uh, having everyone in the same office and building a culture there. But if that office is in Silicon Valley, the culture you're going to build isn't going to be great anyway. So if I had to choose between having remote workers scattered around and an office in Silicon Valley, I'd probably choose the remote workers. So you can leave the Bay Area, and I really encourage you, if you feel stuck here, if you feel like you might be the next James Damore, leave now. Uh, the friends that, that I know who've left uh, have not regretted it. Now, if you're not in Silicon Valley, no matter where you are, you know, in or out of Silicon Valley, There are some things you can do, and there's some things I think you shouldn't do. So what you can do, you can try and find alternatives to some of these products, right? There's DuckDuckGo you can use instead of Google. I use it. It mostly, it's gotten better over the last year. You know, if I get stuck on something, I'll go to Google, but usually I use DuckDuckGo. Unfortunately, you've got, you know, if you're talking about the smartphone market, you've got Apple and Google kind of tying that up in terms of operating systems. So there's really only those two companies, and and unfortunately, Apple has indicated that they are willing to censor, right? They banned the Alex Jones app, uh, I think, uh, a week or two ago. So, you know, I'm, I'm not a big Alex Jones listener, but even if everything they say about him is true, and he's a, a crazy right-wing conspiracy theorist, that's not a reason to ban his app from the App Store. So... There is some danger there, and I think I think that's a problem. So, look, there's the find and use alternative products. I think you should just build them or fund them if you can. If you can fund them or if you can build them elsewhere and they don't exist already, go build some of these alternatives, right? Let the free market 
unseat some of these giants. And I know it sounds impossible that you can unseat Google, but you know, Google, they're kind of like the GE of, uh, of, of the tech world, right? They, they've got a very diverse, diverse interests at this point. You probably can't unseat Google generally, but maybe you can unseat some of their products. And if everyone unseats uh, them in some areas, Google will be hurt eventually. Or maybe they'll change. You know, you can also just, you know, in terms of finding news, you know, start keeping site, you know, lists of sites that you like to visit that have news, right? And I know it's more of a pain. Maybe someone can go build an alternative to Google News. Maybe that's the first thing. Just a portal that has uh, more diverse diverse uh, news sources in it. I don't know. But, you know, you can certainly do that. They can't censor the whole internet. All they can do is censor what you see when you're going through them. So stop going through them. And of course, you can call them out. And if you get banned, you can go to other platforms, but you, you got to call them out. You got to continue to call them out. They do know, I won't say they listen, but they hear, right? They, they hear that you're calling them out, right? And they do talk about it. Whether they take action, that's a separate issue. But, you know, if you start to hurt their stock price, Obviously, they might take action, not necessarily, because again, they're they're in many cases more committed to uh, to radical leftism than they are to profits. Which, if you're an investor on Wall Street, you should note that. But they might they might change. Now, one thing I will say about other platforms, and you can see this, uh, I've I've heard Gab has been accused of this, right? Uh, I, I heard someone say, well, Gab's full of a bunch of Nazis. Now, I, I'm on Gab, but I honestly, I, I'm on it, but not very much. I don't, I haven't really explored it too much yet. But, you know, they say, well, Gab is full of Nazis. Now, I, I know not everyone on Gab is a Nazi because I've seen some people on Gab who aren't Nazis. But maybe it's true that there's a high level of, of distasteful people on some of these platforms, but that's not inherent to the platform. That is going to happen no matter what. If you have a platform that has uh, that is that is kind of unregulated, uncensored, because when you're when you're Twitter, right, and you want, let's say you just want to go after all conservatives on Twitter, well, you can't start by banning uh, Fox News, right, because that's just too obviously egregious. You gotta ban the the far right crazy people that no one likes anyway first. You gotta ban the the actual Nazis first right? And you kind of work your way up. And maybe you ban the actual Nazis first. Maybe you ban very influential people who have said something that you can justify banning, right? And you work your, you work your way up to Alex Jones. It takes a while to get to the point where you ban Alex Jones, right? Who, again, may be a conspiracy theorist, but doesn't mean he should be banned, right? So what that means is those first people to leave Twitter to get banned, they go to these other platforms, which means these other platforms have a higher percentage of these, we'll, we'll call them bad elements in quotes, right? But they have these higher percentage of people who've been banned from other platforms. That's that's where they're going. So those are the people that find refuge in, in platforms like Gab. But as more mainstream people get banned from Twitter, right, these platforms like Gab will start to become less populated percentage-wise by uh, distasteful Nazis and more populated by just people who are not leftists who said some things that Jack Dorsey didn't like, right? 
And so over time, I I think those platforms, you know, if they survive, right? So building a social media platform is one of the hardest things to do. The hit critical mass is very difficult to get these to work. But if they survive, they will uh, they will start to be populated by more reasonable voices, and it and it won't be that. So you just deal with it. If you go to those platforms now, and that's what you see, you're just going to have to deal with it. Just don't just don't like and follow people like that. So those are some things you can do. I want to end though talking about something that concerns me and I hear it from conservatives uh, mostly here and again I'm, I'm not a conservative so I'm not in your camp on this guys but uh, here's what you shouldn't do in my opinion here you should not call for the regulation of Google or Facebook or Twitter it is it is a dumb stupid ridiculous self-defeating idea to do this not only is it wrong, it is self-defeating, right? Yes, I've heard the legal arguments, right? I've heard the arguments to justify, you know, under Section 230 of the, the Communications Decency Act of 1996, right? Whether you treat someone as a provider or publisher matters. I've heard that legal argument, and, and I don't care because it's a bad idea. Now, why is it a bad idea? Well, let me, let me explain my perspective on what's really going on here. The battle here is not between conservatives versus liberals, I don't think. You know, if you look at the 2016 election, I think if it demonstrated anything, it's that both conservatism and liberalism lost. What won was Trump, was Trumpism. He's not a conservative. He's not a liberal. He's, I would say he's completely, or at least almost completely unprincipled. He's a he's a pragmatist or a populist. I don't think that's good. I'm not this is not praise for him. But that's what he is. He's not this is, he wasn't a conservative victory. The conservatives didn't win the Republican nomination. Trump did. Right? So but if you look at Trump, there are there are a few ideas that are very consistent with him. And I think the central one that motivated most most Trump voters uh, was this idea of being opposed to the deep state, right? Now, whether he is actually opposed to it or does anything about the deep state, that's a separate issue. But if you look at the election, I think Trump was was elected partly as a reaction to two things. One was the media being very pro-state, pro-big government, Right now, a lot of a lot of conservatives you'll call the media leftist, and and I get that there are a lot of Democrats, mostly Democrats in the media. They do have a leftist slant. I'm not trying to take that away, but you know, also remember that it was the media that talked us into the Iraq War based on lies, right, from the Bush administration. So, the media is, I would say, more than being traditionally leftist. They're just big government, right? I mean, there's very few cases where they oppose big government and more government. More war, they're for it. More regulations, they're for it, right? They, they, they'll oppose some stuff that infringes on freedom of the press if they think they're going to be affected by it, but mostly they're just for big government, right? And so I think that one of the things Trump clearly was anti-mainstream media, and I think that resonated with a lot of people because 
a lot of people do feel like the media is just biased. But the media is not just leftist bias. It's, it's kind of biased towards this statism, right? And, and the other thing is, you know, he, he talked about draining the swamp and he talked about the deep state. Now, a lot of people think the, the phrase deep state is this conspiracy theorist sounding thing, right? And maybe it is. So call it something else. It doesn't matter. To me, when I say deep state, I'm just, you know, it just means an out of control bureaucracy that has its own agenda. And that doesn't mean it's a conspiratorial agenda. It just naturally has its own agenda. It brought us the Iraq war as I mentioned, right? It's responsible for the bailout of banks, right? It's responsible for increasingly oppressive regulations. People can kind of mock this idea that there's this deep state, but this isn't a conspiracy. This is just kind of a natural and predictable thing that happens with big government, right? I had to explain this to my nine-year-old the other day, and it's, it's very simple. People that work in the big government have a selfish interest to continue to work in the big government and to get more and more responsibility and to have bigger and bigger budgets to grow their departments, there's no incentive to shrink government if you work for government. And so you don't have to have a conspiracy. It's just naturally in, in government employees' self-interest to have more government, right? And, and you can see this, right? You can see this in, uh, you can see evidence of this in, in this anonymous op-ed from, from a, quote, senior official, in the Trump administration, right? Here's a, here's a guy or, or a woman or maybe multiple people uh, or or non uh, non gender binary. I don't want to don't want to assume. Uh, you know, here's this person that's working in the Trump administration, and they are bragging about subverting Trump's agenda. Now, that is deep state by definition. That's what. That's what people are talking about. Whether you like Trump's agenda or not, Trump was elected to enact his agenda. So people working within the administration should not be subverting his agenda. And when they are, then they're working in their own interests, which is the deep state. So I think the the reaction here, uh, Trump was elected as a reaction to this, the media and the deep state, primarily. So to the extent that that's true right? It's an indication to me that this battle is shifting from conservative versus liberal or Republican versus Democrat to kind of this idea of people who want to reduce government involvement in their lives and people who want to increase government involvement in, in things, right? That it's the, uh, the laissez-faire people against the busybodies, right? That's the fundamental thing here, right? It's collectivists and individualists, right? It's, it's lazy, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, busybodies and laissez-faire people. Like, that's that's the real battle at its core. Now, again, Trump isn't consistent in being either one of those. He's not principled, right? But to at least some extent now, there's been this groundswell of kind of, you know, more laissez-faire. Let's reduce the government. Let's not be busybodies. Let's get out, right? Let's get out of people's lives, right? And so I would encourage all of you to stop thinking in terms of being on the left or being on the right, Right? And think in terms of, are you a statist or non-statist? You want more state or less state? What do you want? Right? Because those are really your two fundamental issues. If you're going to agree with everyone that there should be a huge state and you're going to argue about how it gets used, you're all on the same side. You're, the, you're two different sides of the same coin. You're the same thing. Go squabble about how you're going to use tax dollars 
that that's a different fundamentally that's a different squabble than whether you should have tax dollars to use right and so you know in fact this just reminds me uh, I'm thinking even man I think as recently probably as as 10 or 15 years ago I remember concluding to myself that uh you know, there, there was the difference between Democrats and Republicans was so minuscule and so insignificant that um, that I, you know it wasn't really it wasn't really worth debating. And I had the strategy that really what I wanted would I would support more than anything was gridlock. So if you know if I had to vote for someone who is a Democrat to create gridlock, fine. A Republican, fine. I, we needed gridlock because at least gridlock meant the government wasn't getting bigger. They were just doing nothing, and that to me was better than getting bigger. It's not getting smaller, but it's not getting worse. And so, I mean, maybe it wasn't 50 minutes, it was longer, maybe it's 25 years ago. But the, the point is, you know, at some point, I think a lot of people had this, this idea that there's no difference between Republicans and Democrats. And I'd just like to remind people out there, there's still not much of a difference between Republicans and Democrats. Right there, there is a difference between statists and and non-statists, and Trump may have mobilized some non-statists, but uh, he's not he's not a laissez-faire guy. He's not principled. So anyway, if if I, I encourage you to kind of think of yourself in these terms, and if you are not a statist, if you are for reducing the size of government, then the first reason to not go after Facebook or Google or Twitter through regulation on the government side is it's wrong. It's immoral, right? The government has no business telling people how to regulate or sorry, telling people how to, how to communicate through regulations, right? They have no, they have no business telling people how they can't and can't can and can't communicate with each other, right? That's not a proper function of government. That's the, that's like, it's the Soviet style, like police state stuff. That's what that is. Freedom of the press, free association, those are requirements for a free society. Now, obviously, if if Twitter is violating its own rules, then you can maybe have a case against them, but I don't, you know, they're not, and neither is Google, right? So if you review yourself in this limited government camp, you can't just argue for the expansion of government because it happens to be convenient because you don't like Google. You know, you know it's wrong. So don't fall prey to that. Now, if the moral argument doesn't work on you, how about this? You know, the second reason here is a practical argument. It won't work. It will produce the opposite of what you want it to produce. Okay? Regulating Google will not make Google more conservative if that's your goal. Or if you're not conservative, like me, and you just want it to be more fair and less biased, it's not going to accomplish that either. Look at this historically. There was a thing called the FCC Fairness Doctrine. It was abolished in 1987, and it basically required kind of equal airtime for, for opposing opinions. And when it was abolished, you had more conservative talk shows, not less, right? You had more conservative. And if you, ha- if you want an idea of what some you know, government-regulated programming looks like, look at PBS. Look at NPR. Is that what you want more of? If it is... Then, then regulation is the way to go. But if it's not, regulations, that's what regulation is going to give you. So don't live in this fantasy world that, you know, these, these people 
in government are going to create somehow through regulation a more fair and free and open and honest version of Google News or Twitter. It's not going to happen. Now, the other thing you should think about is, you know, maybe you're a Trump supporter. What happens if, when he's no longer president? What if Bernie Sanders gets elected? What if Kamala Harris gets elected? Right? What if, uh, what's her name, Elizabeth Warren gets elected? What if in 20 years, it's, uh, <laughs> what's the woman's name? Alexandria Cortez, I think is her name, right? Uh, what if she gets elected? Do you think those administrations will regulate Google the way that you're imagining Google will be regulated? No, of course not, right? And and frankly, you shouldn't expect any administration to do that because it's not really possible. And even if you're, you know, if you're on the left and you're advocating for this, I don't know why you would be. Well, actually, no, I do know why you would be. So I actually think this is a bait and switch from the left, right? Facebook, Zuckerberg has said he wants to be regulated. They love this because if they're regulated, they can just follow some rules and then they don't have to worry about any liability legally. They don't have to, they don't have to worry. They just, oh, we're, we're following the regulations. We're done. They don't have to address any concerns about what they're doing anymore. They're just following the regulations, which they will help write because that's how this works. It's called regulatory capture. So, you know, they actually want it regulated, right? You know, I would argue to anyone on the left, do you really want the Trump administration to have power to censor the press? Because <laughs> that's effectively what you're doing uh, when you do that. So I assume the answer is no there, unless you're playing the long game. And I think a lot of people on the left that are, are kind of intentionally playing the long game. I think Google is begging all the non-leftists out there, they're begging you to support some kind of regulation because it will favor them in the long run, right? The other thing regulation does is it locks in existing large corporations because regulation is expensive to, to comply with. So if you are Google and you can get some kind of regulation passed around search engines and delivering news, that will prevent some of these alternatives that I'm talking about that need to be built. That will prevent them from... from or at least offer a substantial roadblock to them coming in competing with Google. That's why large corporations actually typically like regulation. It locks out competitors, or at least makes it much diff much more difficult for smaller uh, businesses to compete with them. So, you know, don't do this. Don't fall for the trick. Don't compromise your principles here, and don't call for regulation of these companies. I'm, I just explained how horrible Silicon Valley is, and I just explained that that's the way Google is, and we all know it, and, and yes, it's horrible, but that's the way it is. You still shouldn't regulate Google. You shouldn't regulate Google. Don't do it. Not only is it wrong, it'll backfire you. It'll it backfire on you. It, it'll backfire. So, look, I'll wrap it up here. Look, Silicon Valley's bad in terms of the the culture. The culture's toxic. Uh, like I said, the Google video is not surprising to anyone here. But, you know, that's, it's the way it is now, and it, it's just the way Silicon Valley is. We're going to have to get used to it. Now, unless Silicon Valley changes, and I don't see any signs of it changing, by the way. I mean, people who don't like it are leaving, right? They're not, mostly not staying around to fix it. 
Um, like I said before, I think they're living on borrowed time. Right, unless things change here, Silicon Valley is living on borrowed time. So maybe that will give you some sort of hope. But this kind of social justice warrior, uh, radical left philosophy, it's ultimately self-defeating. It's certainly not going to produce great companies. Um, but it's just that there's a lot of money and they're going to continue to be a force here for quite some time, even if uh, they've started to self-destruct. But it's already not the only force. Right? It's already not the force it was. There are already other places to work and live. You know, I, I mentioned Shenzhen kind of jokingly, but not really. I mean, yes, the Chinese government is horrible and worse, but eh, the culture in Shenzhen is the people there. Eh, I would argue better than Silicon Valley's culture, absolutely. You know, certainly not the, the individual freedom-loving uh, individualistic culture of uh, of America of of yesteryear of America of yore, right? It's it's not the freedom loving culture that that we wish uh, many of us wish America was, but eh, it's not bad, and it's you know certainly less focused on social justice and radical leftism and more focused on just building companies, so. And there's other places, you know, people move to, to Washington, they're moving to Colorado, they're moving to Texas, pl- plenty of places in the U.S. To, to live and work in the tech industry. You don't have to be, to be here anymore. So look, if you're in Silicon Valley, uh, you know, feel free to reach out to me, uh, either to talk about your own you know, struggles or, or hardships or tell me I'm wrong about something. Maybe there's some pocket of of uh, non-socialists somewhere that I don't know about. Please invite me to your meetings if you're having them. Uh, you can go to 751.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-F-I-F-T-O-N-E.com. Or you can tweet uh, at 9, the number 9, until the number 8. So 9 until 8. Number 9, the word until 8. Uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. As always, uh, you can... Subscribe, like, and share this. Uh, please do so. Please also go to 751.com to support the show. You can subscribe there. You can uh, donate through Patreon or using cryptocurrency at 751.com. Or you can go to Patreon directly. Uh, we're patreon.com slash unsafe space. I keep meaning to give a trigger warning before I do that. Trigger warning. Patreon.com slash unsafe space. So you can go do that. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you next time.